Good to be with you. It's a privilege to be here, um, and it's, it's exciting to jump into Scripture this morning uh, and see what might not encourage us, what we might not be able to learn. Um, before that, I just want to tell briefly a story. We did the joy offering in December. If you remember, we took an offering throughout the month, and then at our Christmas Eve service, we collected kind of the overflow uh, that we had in terms of gratitude, generosity that was above and beyond our giving uh, things we thought we could spare if we changed up maybe our Christmas patterns. And we raised close to $18,000, uh, a little over $17,000 in that joy offering, and, um, which was really cool, by the way. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure for Pete and I. We went to Thailand with one of our partner organizations, which was called The Sold Project when we left and is now called The Freedom Story. It's an organization, um, they rebranded kind of while we were there with a group of, of thought leaders from around the country. And they did a rebrand partly because of the vision they have in terms of ethical storytelling. Uh, one of the things you may have noticed over the last uh, seven, eight years, this field of trafficking or anti-trafficking work can tend to be very sensational uh, ever since the movie um, Taken, right? It's, it can grab us and kind of do that. And it's not always helpful to people, especially victims that come out of a, a difficult situation, and then in some ways are re-exploited by the compassionate people that want to take videos of them, try and have them share their testimonies, and then use them in the good cause of fundraising, not realizing that the PTSD uh, that a lot of these people are experiencing would mean that we treat them differently. So one of the things that Rachel Goebel, who's who we kind of partnered up with in that organization years ago, uh, is a leading voice in is this idea of ethical storytelling. So the, the name change kind of went with that to kind of bring along hope. And it was fun because not only were we there with a partner, we were there with some other partners. And so we were able to tell two different um, people what the gifts were that Antioch was bringing to them. Uh, and it's very interesting play. First off with the freedom story, you might wonder what are we doing over there in Thailand? How's that relevant? Well, the interesting thing is, is it's relevant in a few ways because the sex industry, sex tourism industry there is really something that grew out of the U.S. involvement in the 70s because of the R&R relationship we worked out um, during the Vietnam War. The, the tourism that kind of grew up there and is now a significant part of their economy really was something that we're complicit in. Uh, it's hard to get statistics in Thailand, but they say that seven out of every ten men that get off a plane from somewhere outside of Thailand are there to buy sex or buy sex while they're there. Um, so you're talking about a significant exploitation of vulnerable people. Um, not only that, one of the reasons we get involved overseas is because our engagement locally is informed sometimes um, and is magnified when we get away and see the world a different way and begin to learn things. Um, it's, it's what you did in, in college with study abroad. Right? When you go study abroad or immersive language training or any of these things, getting out of your own context and being able to kind of sit in a space and think differently about home changes who you are when you come home. Does that make sense? So we, we, we don't go on trips and think that we're going to change the world. We go on trips to be changed sometimes. Um, not only that, the interesting thing was by having a couple of our friends, David Bailey, you remember he was here not too long ago, Leroy Barber, on this trip, as well as Eugene Cho. These are individuals in the United States that um, understand 
this idea of narrative and voice, majority and minority culture, and had the group circle up after the first two days and ask a question about the first two days, we have Western NGOs, nonprofits that we met with, with people that had come from the States, given their lives to live there and do their work and do amazing work. And then we had gone and visited two organizations that were run by what would be called indigenous leaders. In other words, people that were born and raised in the city where they work. Went to law school, got their degrees, did different things, and because of the calling God had on their life right there in their, in their local community, um, started different in various ministries. And it was really interesting that everybody respected and valued all of the people we'd met, but there was, there was real differences between the two. Um, the indigenous voices were hopeful. It was really fascinating. Uh, the indigenous voices didn't go on and on about corruption, but they, they talked about the allies they have with police and with local government and how they're all working together. They talk about the allies they have with the U.S. government because a lot of what happens now is the extradition of, of people that in, in, engage globally uh, for sex with minors and that how we've really been able to um, curtail that because of those partnerships. And so by having these leaders on this trip, some of our friends, it was really interesting how we, Pete, I, and others, were able to learn a little bit more about the nuance of what it means to do justice, what it means to, to birth organizations, what it means to engage in our local community and, and to do it well, and, and to value some of the, the people that God has raised up in this local community. So it was a real blessing um, to be on that trip, to be able to be with those people, to learn from them, and to let both of them know about our generosity into those ministries. Um, so, um, wonderful time. Um, and so, thank you for that. Uh, I wanna jump quickly, because we're gonna do communion later, but jump quickly into a series, a three-week series we're doing on uh, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Christian God, uh, that, that we refer to as God as a God in three parts, so the Trinity, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Pete spoke to the Father last week. We're going to talk about Jesus, the Son of God, today. Next week, we're going to have a guest by the name of Paul Pastor. Uh, his last name is Pastor. Um, it's not like a hipster name. Call me Paul Pastor instead of Pastor Paul. Um, <laughs> His name is Paul Pastor, uh, but an amazing guy up in the Columbia um, River Valley Gorge. Did I use too many words for that? Um, but lives up there, come down, uh, and one of the better writers these days. Uh, unbelievable writer, and he wrote what I think is one of the better books on the Holy Spirit, um, The Face of the Deep, and, and we'll be able to hear from him uh, on the Holy Spirit next week. So excited about that. But if you will, I want to read the Apostles' Creed for us, and so this is probably the earliest creedal, creedal document, creedal saying that we have. I have a picture, uh, a wide picture, Erica, of uh, a depiction of this. The creed, the original language was a symbol, that the, the creed was, um, the language was a symbol, that it was like a banner, that this was what you could rally to, to see and to know and to understand what was true uh, about the Christian faith, that this symbol, this, this Christian symbol uh, many believed goes all the way back to the, the disciples themselves that spoke into this. Uh, there's pictures, a lot of the early tapestries, um, various kinds of things, mosaics, li literally have the, the, the words or the voice coming out of these 12 apostles. Um, but it, it goes back uh, very, very far, and so it really begins this way. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
And I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's interesting that in this Apostles' Creed that a full 70% of it seems to be devoted to Jesus. A full 70% of it seems to be devoted to Jesus, even though it's broken into the three parts of um, the Trinity. Now, there's no like, surprise to that because there's something that's true about Jesus that's not true about the Father and the Son. That sounds weird, or the Father and the Holy Spirit. That sounds weird to say that God is one. He's one God uh, and shares in the same kind of divine nature, but that there's something true about the Son that's not true of the other parts of the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what's true about Jesus that's not true about the others is that uh, Jesus was human. Jesus lived a human life, which is not true of God the Father or the Holy Spirit. And so there are events, human events in human history in Jesus' life about him suffering under Pontius Pilate, him um, being crucified, being dead for three days, rising, that these are all unique events that are human events that are particular to Jesus. Now, how do we understand, because I find that question comes up a lot, how do we understand this kind of mystery of the Trinity? Um, it, it is a bit strange. It's part of why if you go to Islam, they, they're so emphatic about we worship one God and, and Christians will be like, we do too. And they're like, no, you worship three um, because of this idea of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's arguments um, with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses on the nature of Jesus, um, uh, really ultimately coming from the Nicene Creed about whether, uh, Nicene Creed about whether Jesus existed before he was born or whether he came into existence when he was born. And the idea that Christians have is, no, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed, and then what we get in the book of Genesis when they say, let us make man in our image, that you have this divine trinity, this divine community um, that is creating the world, and that, the whole, uh, that, that God sent the Son, therefore, into the world to be born. But he preexisted when, when he was birthed in that, that uh, manger right? Or laid in that manger. So you have these interesting dilemmas that come up with this idea of the Trinity. So how do we really understand it? Because it sounds confusing. So I'm going to show you, we've got a different picture, but I'm going to draw it out. Um, this is a, an ancient Spanish kind of rendering of it, but this is called the Trinitarian shield. And so if you're a note taker, you might want to take notes. Um, if you're a picture taker, you can zoom in and take a picture if you want. But this is called the Trinitarian Shield, and it's really some, uh, something that was helpful in understanding um, this idea of how the Trinity works. And so you have the Father, and you have the Son, and you have down here the Holy Spirit, and in the middle, this idea of God. And so the Father um, is not the Son, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit as well. 
Likewise, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Son is not the Father. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That's how this divine mystery gets represented um, throughout history in this idea of the Trinitarian shield. If you grew up Catholic, you would have learned about this in catechism. And this is a way of kind of separating out what do we mean by is and what do we mean by is not. So how would you understand that even further? I'll tell you how I've come to understand it. Um, and uh, if there's heresy in it, that's fine. You can discard it later, but it's helpful for me. Um, when, uh, when we were, in, when we were in, uh, coming back from Thailand, um, I was, I was in a, an airport with Eugene Cho, and Eugene Cho is an introvert. Uh, he's introverted as all get out. Um, by the way, he's one of the most likable people I've ever met. I believe he's the real deal when it comes to speakers, pastors, thinkers. Um, but we had ridden these elephants. Now, these are reclaimed elephants uh, at, a, at like this ethical kind of resort that basically pays them 15 times living wage, gives medical care to their family, houses the whole family. Because when you got rid of circuses in Thailand, a lot of these elephants are owned by somebody. Their whole life savings is in this elephant. And so you end up doing these street kind of performing things, various things, logging, where, where it ends up hurting these elephants. So if you've read those stories or seen Dateline, this is not that, okay? Um, anyways, uh, Eugene Cho gets on this elephant, two, this two-hour elephant ride, and, and, uh, and he started, by the end of it, he had this running joke of, of name, you know, calling his elephant by name, and, it, and it was, the name of the elephant was Bloom. But the way the, the guy that owns it that walks alongside it would always say, Bloom. So Eugene Cho just was going on and on about saying Bloom. And every joke, he'd be, he'd be like, you know, do you know what, you know, blah, 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 blah. And everyone would be like, and then he'd be bloom. You know, I mean, just kind of one of these things, right? He's just doing it over and over. And so we're sitting in the, this lounge, and a couple other people from the trip come in, and Eugene's doing something where you think he's over here, and I was reading something, and, and I basically knew right when he was going to go for the punchline, and I was like, bloom, you know, and, and he said it at the same time, and he was surprised. I was like, Eugene, we travel together so much, I know what you think, right? And, and he's like, yeah, you do, right? With my wife, it's even more significant. Um, I, I think I know what she thinks sometimes, and she knows what I think. And the closer we get in terms of relationship, the more we come to think each other's thoughts, share each, each other's thoughts, even share some of those same desires. If you basically talk about God being a spirit, the Holy Spirit being a spirit, um, you know, Jesus being in relationship with that, when you begin to to get so close that you don't have the physical boundaries that we have. And you can understand, see, know, and feel someone else's thoughts, right? But know that they're that person's thoughts, right? You understand them and you resonate with them so much that there's a oneness there, right? But there's a difference in that that those thoughts that you feel, know, understand, and agree with or are in alignment with are actually belong to somebody else. But you share in it so deeply that you're one. So you're, you're two or three, yet one. Um, and we, we use this language. It's as if they have the same mind, 
right? We use it in sports. They're on the same page in some ways. And I think when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Father, the Son, and this idea of God, we're talking about this divine relationship, this, this unity that exists, even though you have three distinct separate persons in that relationship. This is what's been fascinating for me lately. I am, just so you know, I'm growing a lot. I don't know why y'all came eight, nine, ten years ago to Antioch, because I'm so much smarter now, um, and, and uh, way more mature. Um, but I'm, I'm always learning, and it always shocks me when I learn something really simple. And I'm like, how did I go along um, for so many years not really understanding this? And the one thing that I've learned recently that's really blown my mind is this idea that we always talk about being made in the image of God, right? That, that I'm made in the image of God, that you're made in the image of God. If you want to see what God looks like, just look at me, right? Um, I'm made in his image, right? Or you are made in his image. But we take and kind of do God, me, there's a mirroring effect. I reflect God. I'm made in his image. Missing the whole time that, that God exists at all time in, in relationship. That, the, that, that God is really made up of three persons. God is a community. So I might be made in the image of God, but for me to experience what that image actually means, I'm only going to experience it or see it as it unfolds in community. I can't be on a desert island and fully understand all by myself and fully understand the beauty and the glory of the image of God. In, in my relationship with my wife, I can begin to get there. In community with you guys, I can begin to understand that life is bigger than just me or my circle of influence or my sphere of concern, that this is my stuff. It's, it's actually this beautiful thing whereby we're in relationship as separate persons, working and, and struggling to find unity and to reflect what, what's going on here. That's why Jesus when he's about to die, John 17, gives this amazing prayer, and he's praying to God like, God, as we are one, may they be one. And why is he praying about this, by the way? Because it's the most dominant thought that he has right before he leaves. You know, when, when someone's about to go on a long trip, or you're not going to see them for a long time, and you've got just one minute, and you're telling them, I'm going to pray for you, you're going to grab the thing that, that just seems most dominant, that, that you're most concerned about. And Jesus is most concerned about this idea of unity, that it's going to be hard fought, it's going to be a challenge, um, it's not going to come easy, but ultimately that's what matters. If they stay individuals, or if they compete with one another, if they can't live together, they're never going to fully understand what it means to be the people of God. So some way, uh, some way somehow, they have to, to work through these, these hard fought kind of differences. They have to forgive each other, ask for forgiveness, and somehow get to this place of a committed love. Not a love that just makes me feel good, but a committed love. Um, when I spoke in Perth last week, I spoke on um, something I've never spoke on here. Just, I take, took bits and pieces of things we've talked about here, but I spoke on parenting. I was at a church, and they said, hey, the pastors here don't have kids. Uh, we've got a lot of families, though. Do you think you could just talk about parenting and what does it look like with this whole justice stuff and discipleship? And, and, uh, and I talked on this, this whole idea of parenting, and I kind of gave him my, my spiel about how I never say yes when my kids are wanting. You've heard me talk about that 
the whole variable rewards thing that you actually train them to beg because you know you might change your mind you know so we never do that um, unless you think I'm a horrible parent the difference is is what I'm saying no to is is that I'm gonna mistake the emotion I feel in giving in the good emotion I feel in giving in to something my kid wants I'm gonna stop mistaking that as love and I'm gonna start realizing that being committed to my child's well-being long-term and recognizing that I can come back to them in a half hour or in 24 hours and give them that very same thing but do it in a more appropriate way like God does for us, not just giving it when we ask in prayer, but oftentimes uh, bringing the blessings to us as we obey him or walk by faith, right? That I can model a kind of divine love more appropriately because love is ultimately about commitment, not the emotion I feel, the sense of gratification I feel by giving in to somebody, right? We mistake love real easily. Um, so first thought is just this, that as we look at this, it really challenges our individualistic notion of what life is and what faith is or what community is really about as people who have grown up in a predominantly individualistic culture. I wrote into my new manuscript I'm working on right now, Alexis de Tocqueville in his Democracy in America, the French writer that came in 1831, all the way back in 1831, has this fascinating section where he writes about American individualism. They think only to themselves and to their own family, but they don't understand the fellow man or, or woman standing next to them. That, that basically there's this unique kind of allegiance, individualistic allegiance that shows up in American culture and that it's been a part of our DNA for a very, very long time. And I'm a part of that. And so I'm realizing that I'm gonna only understand myself in understanding myself in community. I'm only gonna stand, understand the image of God in me in understanding it through community. Second thought uh, is this. Um, this idea of the divinity of Jesus versus the humanity of Jesus. Um, I wanna read out of Matthew. If you have a Bible, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. So the first of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And it says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus has been going around doing ministry, and large crowds have been gathering around him, right? He's a human being, he's a, a male human being, He's a certain height, don't know how, how tall he was, but, he, but he's a, an ancient Near East Palestinian man, okay? Uh, and the, the idea is, as a teacher walking around, an itinerant teacher, people are coming around him, and it's not like it looks crazy. He's doing different things and speaking with authority and performing miracles, but when you look at him, you have a category for him. He's a, he's a human being. He's a man. And so Jesus says, so interestingly enough, I'm the son of man, more than just a man, but I'm curious, how do other people talk about me? Who do they say that I am? 
And some say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So in other words, they're going, dude, he's like, he's like those old prophets that used to walk around and, and man, they were crazy and they'd preach crazy, but we think God sent them. And so they're these holy men, these different men, like, and you got to be careful around those guys. They, you know, they, they speak for God. They can pronounce judgment on you. And so this is kind of what the disciples are relaying. The, the people are putting you in that category. Jesus says, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. By the way, Peter's personality was probably pretty uh, assertive, but it's also thought that he was probably the oldest of the disciples. So a lot of the passages when he answers up first might just be because he kind of thinks he's, he's the older one there, that he shouldn't jump in, speak, that maybe he has the right answer. So Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so, interesting thing is the uh, the people following Jesus know Jesus primarily through his humanity, right? They didn't know him first through his divinity. They know him through his humanity. He asks his disciples, but who do you think I am? And, and Peter says, you're this. You're the son of God. In other words, you're, you're divinity. So you're not, you're not just humanity, but you're divinity. And Jesus says, yes. And not only this, but you don't know this on your own. God the Father has revealed this to you. In other words, he has given you the ability, opened your eyes to realize that I am the Son of God, that I'm, I'm special or unique in that way. I'm not just a prophet, right? So for most of the disciples, most of the people following Jesus, they start with the humanity of Jesus, and they're struggling to come to know his what? Divinity. So here's the interesting thing. To those of us in this room that believe in Jesus, we all came to Jesus through his what? Through his divinity. Uh, none of us have ever seen him in human form. And if you're sitting here today, it's because somewhere along the way, you had an encounter with the Son of God. Someone told you about Jesus, you read about Jesus, and Jesus uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever God the Father is doing in your life or is foreordained in your life, that Jesus appeared to you as being true. That, that Jesus is God became true to you. That you accepted that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that by what Jesus did on the cross and dying for our sins, that we could actually live and come to know God eventually more fully in this life and go join the Father in the next, that we somehow have believed the divine message of Jesus Christ, right? So what do you think we struggle with, with most? The divinity of Jesus or the... I think we struggle with the humanity of Jesus most. We've come to, know, we might struggle with the divinity, but I think we really have a hard category for understanding the humanity of Christ. And we're doing communion. I asked the guys, hey, can we do communion today? Because I was really wrestling with what this actually means. And I've, 
I always have gotten the spiritual side of this represents when we were set free by Jesus' death on the cross. This symbolizes a divine spiritual message, right, that came in power and is incredibly significant. But when Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body, and he took the cup and said, this is my blood, I think he was doing more than just talking about the spiritual message. I think he was grounding what he was doing, what the divine Christ was doing, I think he was grounding it forever in his humanity. The very tactile, objective, fleshly reality that was Jesus, that was what died on that cross that day. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, for those of us that struggle with the humanity of Jesus, Um, Taking communion is a sacred act and always coming back to the messy human side of this. Now, what uh, does this really matter? Um, I I think here's a couple takeaways I've got from it, and we'll go through this real quick. Um, These are probably reflective of of just where I'm at in life, but, but thinking through the humanity of Christ made me realize what I'm going through I'm not alone in that. When I pray about the things going on in my life, I'm not trying to make God understand what it feels like. But I have a a Savior. I have a a Lord. I, I have a teacher. I have a high priest that fully understands many of the human emotions that I go through. Um, Jesus as he went from a young man uh, and continued to grow up and then took on his ministry, um, came to understand that the people you looked up to while you were growing up will be the ones who often reject your message when you become a teacher. Just think of Jesus. When, when he was growing up, who were who the spiritual people, the people of God, the leaders in Israel? Those are the people that you look up to like these are the religious folk and, and someday I'm gonna be a religious teacher too. Someday I'm gonna be a rabbi as well. And then when you become the rabbi, when you become the teacher and you start teaching, many of those same people end up being the ones that, that reject you. It's a lonely call, right, that Jesus walked into. That's a very difficult thing that the people that you look up to sometimes growing up are the ones that you find yourself at odds with. I've often, often thought this about C.S. Lewis. Every single evangelical in America who has read C.S. Lewis, think about it. Raise your hand if you've read any of C.S. Lewis. We all, keep your hands up if this is true, we all think that if we met him today, he and I would be best friends. She and I, or he, right? Right? We all think, wow, Lewis and I, we would have got on great. We would have gone and had a pint together in the Bird and the Baby uh, pub that he always went to. Uh, I might not have got on as well with Tolkien, um, but Lewis, you know, we would have gone for bike rides in the countryside, would have been best friends. And and here's the truth. Um, He might have only liked some of us. He might not have liked me. Like, that's a hard thing for me to stomach, right? And it's a good thing he's dead because I, I like to... I like to keep my illusions nice and safe uh, and protected. Um, we like to grow up thinking the people that we respect are gonna are gonna someday respect us back, and it's not always that it's not always that case. And it's a very human thing that we struggle with. And Jesus 
dealt with that. Here's an interesting one. Um, according to Jesus, I, I realized that if I'm going to have any kind of a prophetic pastoral ministry, that this might be true of me as well. That one-twelfth of my close friends, every two to three years, um, is going to betray me in a critical way. That of the people that I, I invest into and bring around me closest, because um, what Jesus did is he brought 12 people in and, and brought them very close and invested into them, um, walked through life with them. And I realize now in a very human way that it's possible, according to the formula of Jesus, that one-twelfth of my closest friends um, might betray me in a critical way every two to three years. I think I lived with an illusion for a long time that if I just meant well, and if I got it wrong and just honestly and authentically said, oh, I'm sorry, I goofed, that people would just understand that I'm a good guy, that I mean well, and that nobody would ever dislike me. Um, and it's just not true. I wrote a long apology last night um, to uh, the two leaders of the South Africa Justice Conference. Um, I've been to every justice conference since it started. There's been 14, and it's, it's happened now in six different countries. And there's going to be one in March in South Africa. I really wanted to go to it. Um, the teaching team you know, that I bounce things off of periodically said, absolutely, it's worth doing that. But... Um, the South Africa Justice Conference is going to do all indigenous voices. In other words, not the American kind of high-profile speakers. I love that, by the way. Um, but they still wanted me there. I wanted to be there, um, all of that. And um, so I was going to go. There was an, another conference that wanted me to come speak on the creativity stuff um, and several keynotes. And so uh, it was a great opportunity for Kilns to recruit. Kilns, a sponsorship goes with that, kind of everything else would be really good for Kilns. But, um, I, you know, obviously the one in South Africa meant a lot. So as it came time to say no to that other conference in North Carolina, I emailed one more time back to South Africa and said, hey, you know, if you can just, you said you could help me just with my travel. Is that, if that's still good, I'll say no to these people, I'll get my tickets, and I'll get that squared up. I was emailing for two reasons. One, as the founder, I, I bring about a, a degree of insecurity with me that like, I just want to make sure people actually want me there, that I'm not just showing up, right? And, um, and so first, I just want to make sure they want me there. Second, the money matters. I don't use a lot of Antioch money when I travel. I'm looking something up um, while I'm talking. I don't use a lot of Antioch money when I travel. Other people um, pay for my travel. And... Uh, and so I just was double-checking on that part. And they came back and just said, listen, you know, it's South Africa. We're trying to do these indigenous voices. We're kind of worried at this point we might not be able to make ends meet, and we just have a small nonprofit that's doing it. We don't know if we can commit to your ticket at this point. And so I came back and said, okay, um, well, they said, you better, you, you better go ahead and say yes to that other conference because, you know, we just can't commit to helping with you and all that. And so I kind of just said, okay, well, you know, if that's what they're saying, then I guess I'll say yes to this other conference, and I did that, right? doesn't sound like that big a deal. Um, 
But I got pulled aside by Rudy Rasmus. You know Rudy and Juanita. Juanita came. She's the one that prayed for like 15 minutes on the stage in a prostate position and taught us all that maybe our comfort zones uh, are a little too fixed uh, with our spirituality. Uh, Rudy uh, is one of the most likable people I've ever met. He and my wife, Tamara, thinks he's um, the deal. We've been on vacation with them several times. It's, it's a privilege in our life. But he's 60 years old, incredibly measured, incredibly wise. He was in South Africa a couple months ago. And he came back to me and said to me in December, you sh- you've made a mistake. So what do you mean I've made a mistake? You've really made a mistake by not going to South Africa. Is is pretty significant. And I said, well, you know, they couldn't help. And I had this other thing going. He goes, I don't, I don't care about any of that. You've been to every single conference, and they've all been run by white people. And they've all been predominantly your attractional-based conference where you bring in U.S. voices, you bring in authors and things like that. The first African conference, the first one that was going to put up um, indigenous voices and leaders, um, and you didn't find a way to get there. What is that? I mean... What, whatever you might have meant, it communicates something. And, uh, and he goes, not only that, but it communicates that if you can't be like the main guy on stage or if you're not going to be a keynote, that maybe you don't want to go. And I'm like, that's absolutely not the case. He says, but you've got to understand what perception looks like. And whether you like it or not, you've put yourself out as a, an example in this space. You, you are a leader. You are the founder. And he said, there are some people that are very hurt that feel like their conference wasn't good enough for you or that they as South Africans weren't good enough for you or what they're trying to do healing the the kind of wounds of apartheid not in the not too distant kind of present from when that all ended feel like maybe that's not good enough for you and I said no 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 you don't understand they thought they couldn't pay and there's this this and I didn't know and I I just wanted to make sure they really wanted me and Rudy's like listen I don't care about all that your insecurities aren't, aren't what I'm talking to you about. You've got to take those to God. Because I'm talking to you about how you walk. And he goes, and you know I love you. I, I forgive you. I'm just trying to help you. you know? So it took me a month, but I wrote, I wrote an apology to the conference directors just yesterday. And I, um, you know, one of the sentences is... Uh, uh, it, all my best intentions aside, Rudy, as good friends have a way of doing, showed me that I made a big and regrettable mistake here. I should have found a way to get down there, even if I needed to take out a credit card to do it. I should have made sure I was standing there in the back of the room celebrating and cheering you on uh, throughout the conference. I should have been less insecure about whether you wanted me and stronger in my desire to be there to serve you. In short, I'm very sorry and wish I was in a position to correct things and be with you in March. It goes down as one of the many learning lessons I've had on this journey and that I hope you can forgive me. I remain the biggest fan of the Justice Conference South Africa and will always be at your service. Hopefully I'll be finding a way down to you all very soon. Um, but we, we learn things and we begin to realize that we make mistakes and that we own those mistakes and that people are going to have problems with us and that people are going to turn on us and they're going to walk away from friendship and they're going to potentially even be our enemies potentially hopefully not send us to our deaths but jesus understands that humanity 
Um, Jesus understands that humanity. Real quickly, just because of time, I'm going to skip um, the last one. But um, things I would say to Jesus. How do I know that you care? Things I would say to Jesus. How do I know that you care? The first thing is just Jesus initiates, like with Zacchaeus in, in Luke chapter 19. You know, it's, it's not just the people that come clamor around Jesus. It's the, it's the awkward dude that we think um, doesn't belong, we, we think is a little too rough around the edges, but Jesus comes in, um, and in Luke chapter 19, he enters Jericho. I've been by this, this tree that they still say goes back 2,000 years. All the tour buses come to it. Um, olive trees have a, a lifespan of maybe four or 500 years. They say it's a miracle. I think it's a tourist trap. Um, but it's a really, really, really big, old-looking kind of tree. Um, fig tree, sycamore tree, olive, whatever that um, kind of thing is there. And Jericho is where you come up where the Jordan River is. Uh, from Sea of Galilee, you come down the Jordan River because you don't want to go through Samaria. And then at Jericho, you cut uphill to Jerusalem, which is on uh, kind of a much higher ground. So Jesus enters Jericho, and a man by there by the name of Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he's very wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus because he was short. He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead. I'm having Kim Hunt jokes in my head, um, if anyone knows what I mean. Uh, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him um, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house tonight. Jesus initiates doesn't just respond. He absolutely initiates. The woman at the well, you know, he starts the conversation with her. Um, Jesus initiates. uh, He loves you. Even if you're shy, even if you're introverted, even if you're going, I don't know if he actually cares about me because I don't know that I think I'm as valuable as other people. I'm just going to hide in the back. Jesus will find you. I when I was speaking in Perth last week, I had one of the most beautiful things ever. I, I hear often, like you might, um, I hear often of testimonies of how Jesus is appearing to Muslims around the world in their dreams. Has anyone heard that? It's a, it's a real common story that Jesus is appearing in dreams to Muslims and that Muslims are coming to Christ because Jesus came to them in a dream, that the divine son reveals himself. And I've always been like, that's interesting. Like, how much, how much do I believe that? How much of that's just folklore? And so on the Saturday night, I go to my friend Jared McKenna's house, and he's having a, a, basically a baptismal catechism with three Iranian guys, a late 20s and their 30s. One was a Greco-Roman wrestler for, for Iran and has these, you know, the, the, the cauliflower ears and, and built like a giant. And, and they're having this thing, and, and he's like, I was going out that night with Jared just to catch up on his life and what was going on. He's like, I'll be done in just a minute. But we start joking and talking with these Iranian guys, and we end up taking some time, and they share their story. And one of them had Jesus appear to him in a dream and just said, go to church um, uh, or, you know, go find me at church. You know, I'm Jesus. I want you to find me. Go find me at church. And so the guy went looked for a church, found a church, sat there for two years, and then in broken English is, is basically getting baptized. The, the next day I was able to be a part of that at the service, getting baptized to give his life 
wholeheartedly to Christ. The other guy, his grandma appeared to him in a dream and said, you need to believe in Jesus. Go find your friend so-and-so and and he'll tell you about him. And, And so he has this dream where his grandma comes to him and says, you need to believe in Jesus. Go find your friend. So he goes and finds his friend and the friend ends up taking him to a church. They all kind of end up coalescing here. And I'm watching this, this baptism happen and I'm thinking to myself, um, Jesus reaches out to people. Jesus cares. Jesus loves you. Jesus understands the complexities of our life and Jesus initiates. And he certainly responds to the woman with the bleeding that, that, that works her way through the crowd and, and is reaching out and grasping for Jesus. And Jesus slows everything down and says, I'm, I'm gonna interact with this woman. Jesus will always respond to those who reach out for him. No one has seen, no eye has heard, any God other than you, Isaiah 64, 4, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. If we call aloud, if we, if we reach out, um, we know that we have a God who understands, a savior who understands, a high priest that, that can take our prayers to the throne room and add all the nuance and, and all the fine texture of human life to those requests that we, we give. So Jesus, when we ask the question, how do I know you care? We know because Jesus initiates We know because Jesus responds. Henry Nouwen said, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered, no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. And Eugene Peterson says this, one way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. When we talk... um, about Jesus' life, we realize that he understands the long nights, the hard days, the relentless work, the unreliable friends, focused and dangerous enemies, a constant threat of death, and ultimately rejection by God's people who were the Christians of his day. He understands the loneliness. He understands the suffering. He understands the physical pain. He understands your insecurities. It's not sin to have insecurities. And I offer to you that when Jesus asked for his disciples to come around, lay hands on and pray for him the night before he was, uh, the, the night he was getting betrayed, that he was dealing with his version of insecurities. God, if you can take this cup from me, please do. He understands martyrdom, which not everyone does. So here are Jesus' words. Do not let your hearts be troubled Rather, trust in God. And the band can come up now if they want. Trust also in me. And I will be with you even to the very end of the age. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If Jesus could get you one-on-one right now, he would say to you, insert your name, I love you. Quit looking away in embarrassment. Look me in the eye. I love you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you with a perfect, long-suffering and patient love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me, 
Find me, says Jesus, to the people that don't even know Christians in their life. Find me, says Jesus, in dreams to people. And to us, in the middle of whatever complexity, he says, find me. Invite me into your community. Invite me into your home, and I will be with you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. And man and woman shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Communion is a reminder. The Lord's Supper here uh, is a reminder. It's a reminder of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. It's the, the body and what Jesus did with that body and why it mattered because of who he was as the Son of God. It's a reminder that Jesus' life and mission include you. You are in the circle of why Jesus came and why he gave his life. It's a reminder that Jesus shows us that it won't be easy to follow him, but that we need grace. It won't be easy because Jesus' own life, the one who's an example to us, his own life was broken. It's a reminder that in the the difficulty of life that we're going to need grace, which is what this offers. We Understand that this is a means of grace, a reminder that his mercies are new every morning. That no matter how much you feel like you've run out of the gas or the the chips you've built up in the bank that would give you the pretext to minister to anybody else, that you can always start over every day, fresh and anew, every day because there is more grace for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And this is a reminder that even when we it's a reminder that even when it doesn't feel like it, we have been set free. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. If you feel like it's been tarnished, it doesn't matter. Um, you take your diamond wedding ring to the, to the store, uh, to Saxon's Jeweler, and they'll polish it up and it'll shine like new If you are in Christ, you've been made a new creation. It doesn't matter how dull you feel that shine is. You can be shined back up so that you see the brilliance of what it means to be set free. We come here as a reminder. We come here to be renewed in our minds. We come here to experience the beauty and the brilliance and the glory of being set free. Um, We come here also, lastly, together. None of us comes here alone. Nobody eats at at a table alone. You go to the bar for that. We come to the table together because in community we're reminded of all the true things um, that God has for us in Jesus Christ. So lastly, this bread is the new Antioch communion bread. It's an artisan bread baked from in this community um, that takes care of every single food allergy there is from gluten all the way on down, so that we don't have to say, some of you um, awkward people line up over there, Uh, the rest of you line up here, I'll be over, you know what I mean? Like, we do this as one body. Amen, let me pray. Father, we give this to you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we need you now. So we come to the table.